Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club with myself, Mooncat, and yourself, Ocho. Hello. Now, there is a problem here, Ocho. Not good to kick off the podcast over problem, but out of problems come solutions. I've just introduced this as the Sitcom Club, and yet there is a bit of a void with regard to the whole sitcom bit this time. Well, it's not entirely unrelated. We're just looking at certain shows that have been mentioned over the past few months. By yourself? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Relevantly. Apropos <laughs> of something. Okay, if anybody didn't hear us last week. Okay, I'll put this from my point of view and then you'll have a chance to respond. So I'll give the factual version and then you can give the counterfactual, okay? Right, so the factual version is that if you've been listening to us for a long time, you will occasionally hear Ocho's slipping references. It started off with Dick Turpin, got mentioned quite a bit, and then it became Callan. And I will admit to mentioning Dick Turpin gratuitous. Excuse me, I'm. It's a conversation. It's not a, no, 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 no. I'm putting forward the case for the prosecution, and then you'll get it's your chance. It's not the Lincoln Douglas debate. And then you'll get your chance for the case of the defence in a moment. So. As you'll have heard, I'm sure everybody's agreeing with me. They're all nodding the head saying, yes, yes, Mooncat, we had all noticed. Yeah, Ocho has a habit of slipping in references to drama shows. Now, I'll occasionally slip in references to other things, but I think that my slippage is relevant. And if I, for example, start mentioning how I'm gagging for some Pop-Tarts or how I really want to go into the town and get myself a big old Whopper bacon and cheese, but it's too cold out there... Somehow I think that you'll find that if you trace those conversations back, they always somehow lead to the sitcom that we were talking about at the time. Anyway, at the end of the last week's show, we announced that in order for Ocho to be able to get this out of his system and be able to talk about these things that he's longing to talk about, this week on the Sitcom Club, we're going to be discussing four dramas. Now, Ocho, I think that's a pretty factual statement that I've given there, but is there any small point that you want to take issue with at all? The nature of British television, certainly of the period we tend to keep coming back to, is such that everything's interconnected. And that's why sitcom is connected with drama. And it's part of the thing, step to unsun. It's sometimes spoken of as if it's a big innovation. I imagine that if we looked for more than 10 seconds, we'd find... Well, you know how things are. Anything that claims to be the first of something tends to be the seventh. But this idea that Step to and so on was, it's a sitcom, but it's not based around comedians, it's based around actors. But because of that way that a lot of British sitcoms have something dramatic at the heart of them and in the casts, and I'm not saying that sitcoms in other countries don't, but we're generally British sitcom focused here. Six Degrees of Callan. <laughs> These things just bounce around. We're going to be talking about two shows made by Thames. Two shows made by London Weekend Television, one of which stars somebody who's most famous as a sitcom star. Well, okay, to be fair, I'm exaggerating for hopefully comedic effect, but... I will admit, I did just start trying to mention Dick Turpin whenever the opportunity <laughs> presented itself, whether it was relevant or not. Well, we've both done that with Spats, let's be honest. I don't think that... Is there a single Spats podcast? Spats is a sitcom. Well, you say that. Is there a single show that we've done that hasn't mentioned Spats? I don't know. We'd have to go back in the archive and listen. And if there are any episodes in the archive that don't mention Spats, I think we need to re-edit and just... I think we should do a show dedicated to Spats where we never mention Spats. We just do in any other business and then run out of time. That could be a challenge. Yeah, yeah. By the way, speaking of any other business, last time I made out like K-Fair was pure... 
Fairground Polari was, of course, it's backslang. And backslang was apparently very popular among butchers. I remember hearing a radio program where a linguist went to the butchers to buy some meat and heard the butcher tell his assistant about, go get some Phoebe. And was delighted. Backslang, it lives. Yob, of course, is probably the most prominent piece of backslang in the English language. Sorry, let's try and keep relatively relevant <laughs> as, we're, as we're already one remove from yes, our normal indeed. business. Well, now here's the thing. I think that you hit the nail on the head there when you said about shows like Steptoe and Son, of course. Steptoe, particularly the earlier ones, quite often they're more dramatic than they are comedic. And also, a lot of these shows have actors in common. I mean, we're both engaged in the, the ongoing activity of spotting faces. We see somebody say, ah, there's a face, there's a face, and so on. And I don't know that everybody actually does that. I mean, I was sort of think well, that... Well, my, my wife and I have the word that guyishness. How does this show score on the that guyishness scale? It's that quality of somebody turns out, hey, it's that guy. And it might be somebody who is later to be better known for something else or more prominent in something else later. It could be an early appearance from them. Or it could be just be somebody who is a regular character actor. I think we'll discuss one or two of them in the course of this Program. Well, three of the four shows we're going to discuss, I would argue, have sit comedic elements. One of them doesn't. And that's probably the one we're going to discuss least as well. Because this being Sitcom Club, we're not in the habit of issuing trigger warnings. And we're going to keep to that, so we're not going to discuss the plot of one of these very much. You just have to take our word for it. Well, it's more about the scheduling. Scheduling as in, I watched it last night about five to midnight and then had to watch an audience with Bruce Forsyth afterwards as an upper so I could actually get to sleep. So, where are we beginning? Are we beginning with that bridge that I sent you? Initially, we were going to discuss three shows because the three shows we keep mentioning. But I sent you, because you said, oh, I never watch drama, I thought you were going to hit everything I sent. So, initially, to ease you in to the world of drama, I sent you the most sitcomish episode of a particular drama. You did. And that show was Public Eye, which is a show that I'd not really heard of before. It's not one that tends to get the ITV free treatment. Could you briefly give a wee explanation as to what Public Eye is and who the regular players are? It's a show I hadn't heard of until after it had come out on DVD and I just kept seeing it being mentioned on message boards and somebody has called it The Wire for the Archive TV crowd. This is the one that people keep pointing at. Public Eye... Fairly simply, it's about an inquiry agent. He's not a private eye, or even a private detective. He's called Frank Marker, he's billed as an inquiry agent, and he is the only fully regular character. He will occasionally pick up a couple of supporting cast members, but there's nobody who sticks with him through series after series. And stories can go off from anywhere where somebody might have a problem they need to pay for somebody to investigate. And that's it. It's very, very strange and very, very loose as a format. Now, that was one of the things that appealed to me about it from the beginning, because for each of these programs, I went into them cold, which is exactly how I wanted to. If you were browsing the TV Times at the time, and you found this show, you might get a little bit of backstory, but not a great deal. And you certainly wouldn't be able to go onto anything like IMDb or Wikipedia and start looking up tons of information about it. So for each of these shows, I just put it on from the word go and thought, well, if I'm going to be challenged and, and going to be thinking for the entire thing, who's that and what's their past and, and, and what relationship has this person got to that person and so on, I would think, well, I'm just going to be judging it as a regular viewer then. I'd, I'd hope that those kind of things would be addressed 
in a nice way in the dialogue to begin with. And to be fair, I didn't actually have that problem with any of the shows that I watched. Well, the lead character of Public Eye, Frank Marker, is a cipher. We find out very little about him, even when one series, Series 4, if anybody really wants to get into the show. Problem is, the first series to be released on DVD was Series 4, the first Thames series, which as it turns out, is the big story arc focusing on him after three series of him being a weirdly peripheral central character. It's one of those shows where it's a new story every week and you do have a character who's in every episode. It's a bit like, you know, like Columbo? Columbo does not come into an episode of Columbo until three quarters of the way through. Some, oh, it feels like a quarter of the way through. There were certain elements of that with Public Eye. So, and unfortunately... All but five episodes of the first three series are missing. It is a right old pain. Yeah, well, I was a bit surprised at just how peripheral his character was in that episode that I watched. Now, the episode that I watched, the episode that you sent me, was, I guess you'd call it a Christmas episode, really, from 1972. And Fans generally regard it as the worst one. They're really? Wrong. Yeah, they're wrong. Well, I, I found it very engaging and quite charming in its own way, and... I like the fact that I recognise people from sitcoms. There was Tony Melody, who I'd seen in all manner of different things. And of course, there was Michael Bates as a news agent, well known as Blay Meyer in Last of Summer Wine and then later on in, in Av Hotman. And straight away, I, I felt just sort of comfortable with it. It's a nice little play, three quarters of an hour, and I'm intrigued as to find out what's going to happen. And it's all fairly light. And yeah, I found it very engaging. And also, I liked that element to it where, again, this this was a constant in all of these shows. And even though they all have different production teams and different directors and so on. The one thing that struck me about these shows was that I was being credited with the intelligence to be able to be presented with the information, take it on board, to interpret it, and then be absorbed by it and interested enough to see how it concluded. I didn't need any signals. I didn't need any dark music playing as a, a bed underneath. I didn't need any particular style of shots or anything like that. The kind of thing which I associate, and this is again, this is part of the reason why I don't watch modern day drama, is that every time I see that original British drama on BBC One, you see a trailer come on. I feel like I've already seen this show by the end of the 30 seconds. This is going to be a bit of a simplification, for which I apologise. But it seems to me that each of the dramas that run these days, they fall into one of a handful of categories. It might be, for example, Oh, isn't everything bloody awful? Oh, hang on, there's this horrible secret about somebody in the family. Oh, what have they been up to? Oh, don't know about that. That kind of thing. And then you've got your sort of spooky secret agent, MI5 whatever the hell it is, oh, there's some business going on, politics, shady characters, oh, don't know about that. And, or it could be like sci-fi, in which case it's just going to be it'll be assaulted by visual effects and so on. And in all of those things, I know that's complete oversimplification, and I'm sure that people will tweet and say, oh, why do you try this, try that, and try that, and so on. But I just feel like it's a sensory overload. I feel like... Somebody's saying, oh, listen to that bed that's playing just now, listen to that incidental music, means badness, something bad happening, about to happen, so on, so on. It's almost like you don't really need to look up at the screen in that case. Which works for some things. If we're going to start looking like throwbacks to the olden days, the film series with incidental music was a common thing from the 50s onwards. But there were other things as well. It's it's kind of like now, if I can go into a weird metaphor British television drama is just a few different flavours of stadium rock. 
Everything's punching the air, light as a loft, regardless of the subject matter. But anyway, back to Public Eye, better quickly explain the plot of this one. So Frank Marker, a man that people come to, pay him money, six guineas a day plus expenses, to investigate their problems, is approached by Tony Melody, can't remember the character's name, who apparently is always getting Marker to follow his wife, because he's convinced that his wife is always cheating. And he's just being stupid, basically. His wife is a perfectly ordinary, humdrum, suburban human being, like Tony Melody himself. But he's somehow convinced that she's got a man everywhere. Every time he walks out of the house, they'll all come crawling out of the cupboards. So Marker finds himself following Mrs. Melody. But there is a counter-investigation going on. Over to you, Mooncat. Mrs. Melody. And by the way, Tony Melody should not be confused with the... Cavalry crooner of yesteryear, Tony Monopoly. Or Tommy Tune. Ah, well, yes. So Mrs. Melody, she confides in the local newsagent, played by Michael Bates, that she thinks that there's something funny going on because Tony Melody's tried this trick a few times before where he instigates an argument and then says, oh, I must go away to have some time to think and so on. And she's twigged that this is potentially a cover-up for something else because she was looking for something in the bureau and she came across this picture of this glamorous showgirl, and it was made out to himself, signed. So she thinks, ah, he's got himself a fancy lady, and this is what he's up to. He's trying to come up with a reason why he's going to leave the house for a night and so on. So Michael Bates, he's quite keen on slipping into the conversation that he was a policeman for 15 years, and he likes to exercise his mental alertness for anything long the lines of this that comes up. So he volunteers to track Mr. Melody over the course of the evening and report back anything. I that went he finds to the out. IMDb to find out the character's surname and it's not listed. <laughs> right, it's definitely gonna be Mr. Melody then, in that case. Although calling him Mr. Melody does make him sound like some sort of child's my first piano or something like that, like something that'd be made by Tommy. I'm getting them confused with Major Morgan. Anyway, sure enough, Tony Melody has this argument with his wife and says, oh, must leave and so on. Off he goes. And then you end up in this situation where you've got Public Eye himself, Alfred Burke. He's staking out the house, watching for chaps arriving and reporting back to Melody. Meanwhile, Michael Bates is trailing Melody and reporting back to Mrs. Melody as to what's going on. Well, in the case of both of them, of course, it's all quite innocuous, is it not? Yeah, innocuous to the point of silly. Yes. And that's not a spoiler, by the way. I mean, that's something that's revealed within about sort of halfway through the programme. But obviously, there's more to come. What is the episode title in question? Horse and Carriage. Okay, so if you want to look it up, I think it was, was it 20th of December 72 was the air date? Oh, you're way ahead of me. Yes, it was. Am I right in thinking, I meant to ask you this beforehand, am I right in thinking that that jazzy arrangement of... (laughs) A Christmas number one. I don't know which one it was, Jingle Bells or something. It doesn't always finish like that, does it? That was a no, one-off. No, no, right. no, no. Fine. <laughs> well, by the way, we haven't mentioned Pat Harewood, the Lil, or Mrs. Melody as we've been calling her. We've been a bit too focused on the men. This is true. This is true. But she wasn't a familiar face to me. No, not to me. I, I hadn't really seen her in anything, anything else. But she's got 55 credits on the IMDb. She must have been doing something right. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I'm intrigued to see more. I didn't feel like it was sensory overload. It was just... Here's the presentation. Off you go. I know it's not a recent program, but there was a show called Red Cap in the 60s. But there was a show, I can't remember, is it 10 years ago, 15 years ago, called Red Cap? Yeah, um, Tamsin Outfit, yes. wasn't it? Yeah. Now, in Red Cap, with John Thor, who's 22 and looks 40. If you ever wondered what a young John Thor looked like, don't bother, there's no such thing. <laughs> he admitted it himself. 
there's this weird little thing. Now, it might be dealt with in the missing episodes. There's about three missing episodes, but I doubt it. There's this weird little thing where, in a few different episodes, somebody said, um, are you married? Oh, yeah, I was. So I'm going, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard about that. Sorry. That's it. In red space, cap. The first episode, there's little meaningful glances off into the distance. And before we're halfway through, let me tell you about how my fiancé died. I think it was a fiancé died. I'm not sure. It's been a while since I watched that episode. I'm not seeing anything against red space cap, but it was just that difference that in red cap, something happened, but we're never entirely privy to it. With public eye, Frank Marcus' entire life happened. There is a spin-off book where somebody spins out a theory as to who he is and where he comes from. But in the TV series, we find out one thing about his home life. It wasn't especially happy. And he's only been an inquiry agent since 1962. And that's about it. And to me, that says less is more. Leave you wanting to know more information than overloading the viewer. Yeah, but the interesting thing is a very well-defined character. You have an idea of what he'd do in a situation. And when in series four, which is the story arc where they kind of break his format and he loses his normal lifestyle, there are a couple of things where he behaves wildly out of character and it's shocking. And yet he's just so completely sketched in. It's really all down to the actor, Alfred Burke. Anyway, that was a little bit sitcomish, and we haven't even mentioned the special shock surprise guest star who turns up. No, I was. The end. And I, I was don't just mean John bit... Norrington, who's also very no. cool. I was just about to actually name him, and then I thought, no, I won't. I'll, I'll, I'll hold off. So yeah, there is another well-known so, sitcom Right, star is that it? We all loosened up now. Our warming exercise. <laughs> Bridge from sitcom to drama, because it's gonna get grim. Well, no, we're not gonna get grim yet, are we? We're gonna get grim at the end. We're going to Callan. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. There's no no laugh track on Callan. Well. No, but do you want to briefly mention, because I think it has to be mentioned, do you want to briefly mention the existence of the Edward Woodward Hour? Oh, yes. And it is apparently available on DVD in Australia. I don't know if I want to buy a copy or not, because at one point Network said they were going to release it, and then they withdrew it. And if there's that possibility that they might put it out, it only exists as a home recording, but if that possibility they might put it out in a higher quality than this Australian DVD but the Edward Woodward Hour, a variety hour for Callan star Edward Woodward to show off his singing and other entertainment skills other than dramatic acting and he made a few albums, I know Box has got a copy of the album Edwardian Woodward Core. where he does a bunch of music hall songs, his singing style is, is one that's fallen out of fashion if you want to hear a readily available example of Edward Woodward singing Track down the 1970 Markham Wise Christmas show, because he's on that and he sings a number on there. Well, he did a vocal version of the Callan theme, you know. So in the Edward Woodward Hour, I don't don't know if it was a series or if it's a one-off or what. There's only one edition surviving if it was a series. We get to see Callan meets Father Dear Father. (laughs) I can't think of any other examples where a drama crosses over with a sitcom quite so upfront. Okay, it's not a sitcom. Are you going to talk about the Sweeney with Markham and Wise? No. Ah. I was going to mention Ricky Fulton's Super Cop, who suddenly finds himself face to face with Taggart, and he <laughs> is properly Taggart. He's not just you know playing a role similar to. So yeah, that that would be the closest I can think of. I haven't seen this sketch, I'm afraid, but I really want to. 
You'll, you'll be getting it sent Supposedly, to Edward Woodward regarded it as the most embarrassing thing he'd ever done. <laughs> but the thing I've heard somebody said is this this weird thing where he's he's presenting the show as himself. And then, like, for this next sketch, I'll be playing Callan, and he puts on the outfit, and you kind of see this moment when he stops being Edward Woodward and becomes David Callan. So who is this Callan that you describe? What is Callan? He's an assassin, and not a sexy assassin. Apparently... Edward Woodward had a lot of female fans, but he's not James Bond. He kills people because that's the only thing he's good at. When we first meet him in an armchair theatre called the Magnum for Schneider, he's a shipping clerk, not a very good shipping clerk, not a very good shipping clerk's office, because he doesn't really have any skills. His skills are shooting people, strangling people, hitting people so hard their necks break, and it takes its toll. <laughs> he's tried to stop doing it. But he can't. It's 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 his only real commodity that he can sell. Do we have any backstory as to how he developed all these skills? There's this thing about how he joined the army and was a pretty useless soldier, but was very good at killing. When the shooting started, that's when he came into his arm, but he was very bad at taking orders. And when we meet him, he's had this time where he's passed through a section of the Secret Service, which is just the dirty tricks section where people are ruined or killed or destroyed mentally or emotionally. But he, he got thrown out because he needed to justify why he was doing this. And he started to worry about his victims. Before long, he ends up back in this section. The first series, which is mostly missing, apparently he just keeps rubbing up against the section. But he's not a member. By the time you saw that episode in series two, he's been brought back in. So he works for the government in the Horrible Squad. And all the different cases have different coloured folders. Yellow folders for people who are under occasional surveillance. White folders for people who are supposed to be sent through the divorce courts or ruined with scandal or maybe sent mad. Blue folders for people who are just in the wrong party. People who are just not politically sound. And even though this is fiction, of course, you know the whole story about the Christmas trees, right? The BBC. People who were suspected of being a little bit too left of centre had a Christmas tree stamped on their file by MI5. But back to the fictional world of Callan, red folders, most urgent, marked for death. Now, obviously I've only seen one episode thus far, the episode that you sent to me. You sent me a message afterwards saying I was a bit concerned that this episode might be a bit depressing and then I saw the episode afterwards. I thought you were going to hate it. No, I actually found it very engaging. And part of that is, I think, due to Edward Woodward's portrayal of Callan because I think that in the wrong hands you could either take the view depending on if he went too far one way or the other you could take the view that he's just somebody who's just got to get out of this role who just shouldn't be here he's not fit for this regardless of what skills that he's got or you could play too heavy and you could think oh well you know is he is he just sort of saying that to try and you know, solicit sympathy from others and actually he might just be as cold-blooded as all the rest. And he was obviously the focus of my interest, because unlike Alfred Burke in Public Eye, he was centre stage for the majority of the piece. And it was very interesting seeing his way of working. Again, it was well presented. It was, here is person, situation that they're in, and this is now how Callan and his group become involved. And it simply plays out from there. And there wasn't any need for any 
nonsense. There was certainly no padding at all. I didn't get that impression. So it just hooked me. I was interested to find out what happened. I guess with any good storytelling, you, you want to know how it ends. The time it comes out, 1967 is when it starts. It runs into the mid-70s. But at the 60s, the time of the sexy super spy. Callan's very consciously a reaction against it. I suppose we're coming a little bit after Harry Palmer, which is also a reaction against James Bond, at least in terms of the cinema versions, even though, of course, the, the Harry Palmer movies, or at least some of them, were made by the same people. And I know John Barry, I think, was interviewed about doing the music and said, so everything I wouldn't have done in a James Bond film, I did. Like a fight scene in The Upcrest File, I think it is. They shoot it through a phone box. It's on the other side of the street from the fight. It's, just, it's happening over there. And shots are framed where it's over somebody's shoulder. Now, James Mitchell, who created Callan, had been writing for The Avengers, which had originally started as downbeat but a bit unusual. First series of The Avengers, I think everybody knows, was actually created as a vehicle for Ian Hendry. And Patrick McNee was the secondary character. And it's about a general practitioner who keeps getting involved in shady business by the Secret Service man, John Steed, that he's had reason to encounter after his fiance is killed so initially starts as fairly grim couple of guys in mechs smoking cigs and mumbling to each other but there was always supposed to be that little element of the unusual and of course the unusual eventually took over in the avengers and so by the time callan starts the avengers has gone bonkers and i think james mitchell doesn't want to write bonkers avengers so he writes this very very sour it's it's part of what espionage is like i think we all know that people do get tortured and sent mad the thing is is that i sent you this episode because i needed to send you one that was fairly downbeat it's not even the most depressing episode that series it's not even in the top three (laughs) but the other thing i like about this is of course the way spy fiction had been in the 60s even james bond being played by a former edinburgh milkman james bond's still fairly middle class i mean if you look at connery's bond there is a kind of bridge to the up-and-coming 60s, more working-class character. There's an element of that. But James Bond, the James Bond of the books is fairly upper-class. In the movies, he's really kind of a social riser. And, of course, by the time you get to Roger Moore, he's, we're back to being upper-class. I'm not a fan of James Bond myself. Try the books. I wasn't a fan of James Bond, and then I read the books, and now I, I quite like the character. Well, if you, if you want, Daniel Craig is sort of most like James Bond in the books, but Timothy Dalton is possibly slightly closer. Now you occasionally see people going, oh, they should get Bond back to being a completely heartless, cold-blooded assassin who likes killing. James Bond is not like that in the books. I mean, he does kill, but he hates it. A bit like Callan, it's chipping away at him. And there's one, a Goldfinger starts with him having just, just completed a mission and broken somebody's neck. And he's depressed because he just killed a man. Not the first man he killed, not the last man he killed, but... There was somebody who was alive and now he's dead because of James Bond. And he feels that. A friend of mine is a big fan of Bond films. And on a handful of occasions, I would find myself watching one of the Bonds with herself. And it was mainly Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton, Lira, films. And I couldn't take to them in the same way that I took to Callan because... Appreciate what you're saying there, particularly if there's a big difference between Bond in the book and Bond on the big screen. But with the films, I just felt that it was a bit of a pantomime and that I might occasionally get a few minutes of Bond having a a dark night of the soul and 
you know, sort of thinking twice about what he's doing, but I know that it's all just sort of building up to the next big action scene. And in terms of how the films are structured, I don't. I admit I'm completely ignorant about this because I don't know the Bond films. I've only ever seen a handful of them. But tell me if I'm wrong, Ocho, but I'm imagining that in terms of their structure, they're going to be relatively similar each one in terms of the ratio of straightforward dialogue to action sequences and how often those action sequences come along and then it builds up to a big finish. Whereas watching Calumny all day, I don't get the impression that it's going to be that same sort of writing by numbers style. I don't think that I'm going to be sitting there after a while watching it and thinking, okay, well, this bit's now going to be coming up. We've had that bit. We've had the, the somber bit. Now we're going to get some action. And now we're going to have a big reveal and so on and so on. I don't think it's going to be as straightforward as that. Yeah, that's true. But my point was, so, right, we're talking about class, which you have to if you're dealing with anything from Britain. Callan is working class. Men are addressed as mate, women are addressed as darling. And there's also this weird sort of crossover with crime drama. Because of the nature of the department Callan works for and they want to keep maximum deniability. But like Mission Impossible will deny any knowledge of you if this goes wrong. With Callan, you know, he has to get his own gun a lot of the time. So he ends up being crossed over with the underworld. This is where we actually get to our sitcom-y bit. There's one character here where I think he could give his own sitcom. <laughs> I'm surprised that there wasn't a lonely spin-off. Yeah, yes, yeah, almost. I mean, I, I'm guessing maybe Russell Hunter didn't want to be too associated. He did say that when he was playing lonely, he took more baths and showers than he normally would have <laughs> and was always covered in cologne. Because for, the, for those who aren't familiar, the character is very, very smelly. Apparently it's caused by nervousness. So it's actually just being around Callan. It causes him to sweat and causes him to stink. So he is his bridge to the underworld. He's, is he part informant and part sort of, I guess you'd call him odd job man? Yeah, I mean, Callan does have a criminal record, which is kind of what ruined him and made him easy prey for Secret Service recruitment. But Lonnie's a weird, smelly, nervous little man, but he's played in this very offbeat style by Russell Hunter. Also, also, is it just me? Does his voice sound like Harry H. Corbett? Yes, a little bit, yeah. So he's he's overacting a little bit. I mean, good overacting. Overacting's a legitimate technique, and that's what he does. When he's in a scene, it gets a bit strange in a really enjoyable way. But there's a really odd relationship between Callan. I mean, Callan just bullies him. It's unpleasant to him pretty much all the time. And then you will get these moments where anybody else is nasty to him. And Callan snaps. Nobody else can bully Lonely. And there are these often little moments where William will say, we're mates. And Callan will kind of get all sort of, yeah, yes, we are. Yeah, Lonely's almost your comic relief. Well, there was one scene with Lonely that made me sort of set up at one point because I'm absorbed in the story. But up until this point, I'm thinking that in terms of the composition and direction and so on, that it's fairly standard. And then there's this point at which Callan arrives to meet Lonely. What's the best way I can describe it? Basically, you're looking at it from Callan's point of view as he parks his car directly in front of Lonely at some speed. And Lonely's rather taken aback and sort of pins himself against the wall. And the way that was shot, it was totally counter to the way that all the other scenes have been shot thus far. And I'm thinking, well, that's... A lot of this slow old style is kind of technical limitations which people wanted to get over. 
And I think they'd be quite happy to make shaky cam incidental music laden stuff. And you've also got, without revealing too much, you've got the scene later on with one of the, the villains of the piece, so to speak, being interrogated. And that then gives rise to some quite innovative filming techniques. And it manages to instill a sense of dread and horror. Yeah, I know. I am aware that we're dancing around the plot because we're kind of hoping you listening to this podcast might want to get into some of this stuff. Well, we're talking basically about one of the villains of the piece being interrogated whilst under the influence of... Everything. Yes, which has been administered by the interrogator. The the doctor in this, Snell, who appears in a few episodes, mentions, well, we, we started off with tranquilizers. He rather liked those. And then we put him on hallucinogens. We managed to make him lose all track of time. He thinks it happened 20 years ago. And does he mention a couple of other things they put him on? But they filled this guy up full of drugs, messed with his head, and later on somebody mentions, you'll destroy his mind, and Snell goes, well, this was a rush job. Now, ah, you want, ah, oh, yes, mm, yeah, indeed. You want your sitcom link. Callan, in the 70s, made the leap from TV to cinema. And there's a really hot, Snell turns up again. The only three actors in the movie who are playing the same characters they played on TV are Edward Woodward as Callan, Russell Hunter as Lonely, and Clifford Rose as Snell. And there's another one of those where he knew too much. And you basically see this guy with his skin's kind of gone grey, and he's just snapped and rattling the bed he's been put into. And it's, ah, oh, man. Oh, this is depressing. I'll give you another sitcom link as well. Allah Till Death Was Do Part. They had an ATV spin-off on one occasion, did it Oh, not? yeah, the, the, the ATV spin-off is not good. As I mentioned last week, Lonely forgets how to read. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll I'll tackle that in due you know, course. I mean, you I see, that because I, I, I just re- realised I had a defence all prepared because I was expecting you to come back and be how can you watch this horrible, horrible stuff? And I know we've made it sound like a real trial to sit through. I guess what I like is these horrible things do happen in life. And it's not that I like horrible things. But when stories about horrible things are done well, somehow it allows me... To take an interest without losing all hope, without just being dragged down. Well, I mentioned in last week's show about how much I disliked the soap operas. Where I would differentiate between this and them is that in something like this, you've got a realistic set of circumstances, which leads to a depressing, downbeat situation that needs to be resolved. Whereas... In the soap operas, and principally I think this is it's because they're on three, four, five times a week, you constantly have... I know it sounds ridiculous because I'm talking about dramas and dramas, so it's all manufactured. And yet I look at the soaps and think it's manufactured conflict because we have this half an hour or this hour to fill up so many times a week. So we need these more and more outlandish elements of conflict and more and more screaming matches between people. Yes, the essence of drama is conflict. The, the reply to that is the essence of drama is meaningful conflict. Exactly, yes. And also, when you then look at the story arc of particular characters and soaps over, say, a 10 or 20 year period, relationships that they go through and the alliances that they have quite often will be absolutely absurd because they've had to go through so many ridiculous situations. Whereas in a straightforward drama, 
you'd have a character who perhaps is quite ordinary and then for this one single occasion something unusual happens to them and that in itself then plays into their characterization because whereas for example somebody like Callan or whoever it may be you know they deal with difficult situations every single day say somebody like Regan Carter for example you know, they're at the sharp end of life 24 hours a day and sometimes they'll encounter people who've led a very ordinary dull existence and then suddenly find themselves in a situation which is completely beyond their control and they're hysterical, they panic, they can't deal with it exactly as you'd expect them to react and that kind of thing is interesting whereas if I'm watching the same people getting hysterical about different things on a week to week or month to month basis then I, I no longer can buy into it I suspect also, you can probably tell Ocho that where I'm trying to explain these things, I'm probably not coming across as fluently as when I'm speaking about sitcoms. And it's for that exact reason that I don't really watch drama very often. And so I find it more difficult to put my finger on why I like or dislike certain things. But I can say so far, two out of the four shows we've covered, I am interested to see more of those shows. And then we watched Enemy at the Door. Moving on. (coughs) Don't get me wrong, I like Enemy at the Door. And I've watched it all the way through. And then after a while, I try to rewatch it, and it's just kind of like, I can't. I need to be in the right mood, and it's hard to find the right mood for Enemy at the Door. Okay, Ocho, in ten seconds, can you quickly describe the plot of Enemy at the Door, and then I'll come back in with an interesting piece of information, which will then blow listeners' minds. During the Second World War, the Channel Islands were initially defended by the British government. They were then abandoned, essentially, by the British government, made a demilitarised zone. So the Nazis came in and took the Channel Islands over. This is the only case you have of, essentially, British people under Nazi rule. It don't turn out well for anybody. No, we did actually allude to this last week, but... For any of you who are currently watching the popular Saturday night entertainment show Splash with Olympic swimming medalist Tom Daly, etc., this is what went out in exactly the same slot in 1978. We still have not quite got our heads around this, have we? This is staggering. I mean, like we said before, we're going to sort of skirt around the, the plot of this particular episode. And honestly, these days, if that episode was to go out today, it would be post-Watershed. I've absolutely no doubt about that at all. It's interesting. I'm not condemning anybody for putting it out there. I'm just very, very, very surprised. And we checked because the TV Times was a bit contradictory. This episode, I picked the most depressing episode I could think of. Uh, It's called After the Ball. The Germans have only just landed. They've decided as a good propaganda exercise, they'll have a dance to show that they're not barbarians. Can I just... Stop you there, Ocho. When you say they're going to have a dance, you mean an organised oh, sorry, dance yes, evening at the local... They're not just going <laughs> to congregate in the local town square. <laughs> Doing the Lambeth Walk. Oi. You know, you've seen that film, yes? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently Goebbels went nuts when he saw it. Oh, really? Genuinely screamed and ran out of the room. So it's a propaganda thing. I don't think he much liked The Great Dictator, either. Hitler saw that twice. Actually, that's true. And yes. I know Chaplin said he would have given anything to have been a fly on the wall. Just to address quickly, by the way, that point about the Channel Islands and their relationship with the United Kingdom. As far as I'm concerned, they've got an ITV franchise. That's all there is to it. Okay. 
So anyway, this is a political thing to try and win the islanders over to the fact that they're now living under the jackboot. Let's just leave it there for plot descriptions. Yeah. I don't yeah, want to upset so. people. No. This um, is the sitcom club, and people have a right to expect a certain amount of grimness to be sidestepped. It doesn't end well. Imagine how bad something could go. Everything goes badly for everybody. There is an interesting tension in it, because the Germans are not all pantomime villains. I mean, there's this old thing, I know, I've heard people sort of say it's a comforting fiction, but this idea that the SS are the Nazis, the Wehrmacht are the Germans... Well, there's at least one episode where one German's decided, yeah, he's a soldier, but he's had enough working for these Nazis, and he'd rather take his chances in a prisoner of war camp with the Allies than keep working for any Nazis anymore. Also, there's a very weird little technique, the accents. They're barely there. The person with the heaviest accent is the local Gestapo guy, and I think there's this slight sense that he's probably the lowest in terms of class. There's a few times where he first basically says that he's just a policeman. Alfred Burke is back, and he's kind of in charge of the occupying forces. He mentions a few times that he actually spent a lot of time in England. But generally, there's the, people just speak in this very clipped manner if they're Germans. They don't put on a heavy accent, which blurs the boundaries between some of the characters. There may be others in the course of this episode, but my first embarrassing confession of the night, I did actually spend the entire episode thinking, I've seen that fellow somewhere before. I'd only when I saw the end credits and realised it was Alfred Burke that I then twig. Oh yeah, he was in Public Eye that I watched last night. Well, you know, that's acting for you. Indeed. But our big sitcom link, of course, is Simon Cadell, who is the German that you're definitely supposed to unquestioningly hit. He's the head of the SS. He's completely committed to the cause. And he's played to the hilt with this. Not in an over-the-top, not in a laughable fashion, but he's played... It's interesting how different from Jeffrey Fairbrother in Heidi High he isn't. <laughs> no, I, I know it's, it sounds like a bizarre comparison to me. No, I know what you mean. Yes, but I know. It's exactly interesting what you how mean. it's yeah. just a shade of a character. Oh, and you know, of course, what we forgot to mention in Callan, Anthony Valentine. Because we've uh, been yes, talking no. about how he'd be an unsuitable Paul. Because I don't think he could entirely lose that edge. Well, that's the thing, because he, he's actually described in that episode, isn't he, at one point by Callan Sr. as he's the nasty one. So he's one of Callan's peers, and yet he doesn't have any qualms about what he's doing. He's just going to get straight in there. But no, I know exactly what you mean by Simon Cadell, because he's not a million miles away from Jeffrey. And yet, of course, as far as their actual characters are concerned, they're worlds apart. But he's got the power. It's gone straight to his head. Whereas Alfred Burke is a career soldier. This is not to exonerate any character, it's just shades of grey that it likes to deal with. And he's primarily interested in just having a very peaceful administration on the island. And he admires Britain. And again, that's what keeps it realistic to a degree. In that if it was more basic, then you could just have, oh, here's the Nazis over there. And to a man, they're just identical. Whereas, of course, in any army, in any conflict in any nation in history you're going to get different personalities different people of course you are you're going to get that in any sorry can we just say this again 7.15 on a Saturday night on ITV <laughs> straight after sale of the century <laughs> I think later in the year the slot is occupied by 321 <laughs> I've just checked on the program guide 
<laughs> the closest program I can see to Splash is Take Me Out with Paddy McGuinness. I'm having I'm having serious difficulty actually comprehending that, that all of this that we're talking about this is all in the same universe. <laughs> Again, I think that it benefits from there's there's more. I mean, this is later, isn't it? This is 1978, so it, it's production style a little bit different, or different company, London Weekend. So a little bit more in the way of incidental music, bits and pieces like that, but not a great deal. And again... Actually, can we just mention the theme tune? This is a war programme. This is a Second World War drama. But the music is just... I think it's an oboe, just sounding sad. It's not militaristic at all. I think there was was a very, very slight hint. There's there's the drums in the background. They come in partway through. They do a little... But the first thing you hear is a couple of bars of solo oboe. 7.15pm on a Saturday. This is where I think that the the light touch when it comes to the direction and the overall style of the show is to its advantage. For example, Michael Scheer is Hitler in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. I thought you were going to mention the Tomorrow People. I know. No, I I have not actually seen Tomorrow People. Any one of its free incarnations. Michael um, Scheer plays Hitler. But there's a bit where he's making a TV broadcast for good and sufficient reasons. He's making a TV broadcast in the 70s. And I'm pretty sure he ends his speech by going, I am Hitler. So his catchphrase. No. Um, so in Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's been a few years since I saw it, but as I recall, I think that Indiana Jones finds himself in the situation. Is it like a huge rally that's happening and he finds himself face to face with him. And Okay, short confession. I've never seen an Indiana Jones film. Right, okay, like it's I said, my memory's a little bit... I'll get round to it eventually, because apparently it's full of that, guys. It's full of British actors of a certain type and Ronald generation. Lacey. Well, Ronald Lacey, Ronald Lacey. yes. Yeah. Uh, Pat Roach from... I've we the same pet. It's in one of the films. But, no, I, if I remember correctly... Spam Fritter from Bodgy. John Reese davis If I remember correctly, the scene where Indiana Jones finds himself face-to-face with Michael Sheard's Hitler is this huge Nazi event, this huge Nazi rally. And so it's it's as you'd expect to see Hitler portrayed in any kind of dramatic setting where he's going to be in it. If, if that makes any sense, I'm not explaining it very well, but you know the kind of thing I mean. You know, Whereas in Enemy at the Door, imagine, for example, if you just left your house and just walked to the nearest street and just stood there and observed. And it's taken you a few minutes to actually twig. You know that something's not quite right here, and then eventually you realise that there are people in SS uniforms walking around here. But they're not walking around or marching or screaming orders at people or anything like that. They're just there as other people are going about their business. And that makes it unsettling. Whereas it's not it's not booming out, you know, dramatic scenes, so on and so on, dark music playing. That, I think, has a much stronger effect the way that it is here, where it's just this is actually the reality of the situation. You'd have to deal with this if you were one of the locals. And it's I think it has much more impact like that than if it's played for big dramatic effect. Can you have a spoiler for something that doesn't happen? Turn away if if you don't want to hear, but there's no proper ending to the series. And apparently had it gone right up to the end of the occupation, it would just be horrible. Just be people eating their pets so they didn't starve. I'm quite glad I didn't get that far because... It didn't get quite far enough for me. I would have liked to to have gone to the Normandy invasion and for the Germans to realise they're cut off 
from supplies from their end. The islanders to realise they're cut off from supplies from mainland Britain. And for everybody's got, this is not going to be good. It's just frustrating because towards the end of the second series, they introduce an interesting plot development for Alfred Burke's character and never find out what happens. Now, the second series, was this also going out in the X-Factor slot or had it been moved by this point? <sighs> Let's have a look, but I don't recall it being any any later. Oh, and can we add another thing here? There's an addition of look-in, where in the letters page, a child... I might be stretching child up into, like, 13, 14, 15. They don't give their age, I don't think. But somebody in the target audience of look-in writes in saying, I'm really enjoying Enemy at the Door. It's very interesting. And it's accompanied on the letters page by a nice big picture of Alfred Burke in his Wehrmacht uniform. This week's colour pin-up. Mooncat, this is the same country we're from. I'm not letting you out of this. You Don't say, oh, that's England. No, seriously. Hang on, this oh, is... hang on, hang on a second. I've just realised something. This is this is the slot that's also at some point in, in the immediate future being occupied by Ross Abbott's Saturday Madhouse. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to guess this before I even say it. As soon as you said looking, you know what I was thinking of, don't you? What you were going to say? There was an enemy at the door garden strip between Mark and Mindy and Benny Hill. It's a, right. I've just found it. Issue twenty-five of nineteen seventy-eight. Stewpot's news desk. More praises and protests. And Juliet Haywood from Kent writes. I enjoyed the series Enemy at the Door because it always kept me in suspense. I also well, I won't read out the entire letter, possibly for copyright reasons. Well, now this is. My reaction to this is probably going to be what you're expecting me to say about all of these things. Is that I did enjoy Enemy of the Door. Obviously the performances and the production and so on. It's a little bit too grim for my taste. I don't think that I'll be persevering with the rest of it. TV Times front cover, January 12th to 18th, 1980, second series, When Your Neighbour is a Nazi. Emily Richards stars in Enemy at the Door. And we have... The first article in the issue is Wives at War. What's it like to live under enemy occupation? So let's have a look and see what time Series 2 was on. 8.45 on a Saturday night after Search for a Star with Steve Jones. That's a little bit better. I mean, it is... You see, I would have thought Sunday at like half past nine. That's what it screamed to me. The broadcaster's always the pains to point out that the 9pm watershed is on a sliding scale... So it's not just at the stroke of nine o'clock it turns from little and large into the war game or anything like that. More adult themes are introduced over the course of the evening. And so, yeah, 8.45, if it's going to be pre-Watershed at all, then yeah, that would make much more sense in terms of its time slot. But have you seen all of both series? Yeah. Yes. Well, I guess I haven't really surprised you with my reaction to that. All I will say is that perhaps I'm a bit too down on it because... I'd watched the show that we're about to talk about, and then after that, I thought, quarter midnight, I'm not really feeling too tired right now. I think I'll watch Enemy at the Door, and that was a bad move. And so I had to watch an audience with Bruce Forsyth as an upper afterwards, just to get myself on a nice, sort of, happy plane. It's like I told you before, when I used to watch Chris Morris's Jam, and then I'd immediately follow it with an episode of Open Lowers. Well, let's jump forward a year then from... The first series of Enemy of the Door, 1978, Saturday night, January 1979, Saturday night, 7.30pm, Dick Turpin, almost f- essentially the same slot. 
as the later episodes of Enemy of the Door, certainly. It is. Well, the first thing that surprised me about this is how light-hearted it was, because I don't know why, but for some reason I got it into my head that Dick Turpin was, for start, I thought it was an hour long, and second, I thought that it was a full-on sort of straight-laced drama, which it really wasn't. I mean, if that was a representative episode that I saw, it was much more light-hearted. It was only half an hour. It's still drama rather than comedy, but it was good old dramatic hijinks. It was it was like a comic strip come to life. Yeah, it's swashbuckling fun. Written by Richard Carpenter, the other one. Because he later went on to do Robin of Sherwood, which is a little bit more misty. Now, and... okay, am I wrong in this? My memory of Robin of Sherwood was that it was on for at least two hours on a Saturday night. Now, have I got that wrong? I never watched it at the time. And I I've never watched it, it since. I really should give it a go, shouldn't I? It was just there. I had no interest in it. I was taking up half of Saturday night, and I'm thinking, what the hell? Even at the age of, I don't know, what it would have been, eight or something like that, it was just, oh, bloody hell. When's Price is Right coming on? Yeah, Dick Turpin is just roister doistering swashbuckling fun. But our principal point of interest is its star. Hey. Mr. Richard Men About the House, Oh Trouble in Mind Sullivan. <laughs> when did Robin's Nest end? That ended in the 80s, didn't it? I just can that. Did... Yeah, I think Robin's Nest was still on at this point. So I think there's a slight overlap here, but this is principally between Robin's Nest and me and my girl. So, so he's making the, the leap from sitcom star to action hero, and for my money, he does it. Yeah. This shot is a really clever thing, actually, because the historical Dick Turpin was not admirable. He's just a thief. And I say that in the certainty that none of his gang are going to come and get me because he's been dead for 200 and some years. See, if he was just portrayed as an out-and-out villain, he probably wouldn't win over the hearts of the TV Times readership. Well, this is the really clever thing they do, because I didn't send you episode one. I sent you, I think it was episode five. I'll explain in a bit why I did that. I haven't done enough historical research. I think it might have been circa 1745. Dick Turpin was hanged in York. I've been to where he was kept. before. Can I make a prediction right now? Yeah, go on. Now, no, no spoilers. So... From a no-spoiler point of view, it's going to be impossible for you to answer this question. But I'm going to guess that the last <laughs> scene of Dick Turpin starring Richard O'Sullivan is not his hanging. Well, this is the clever thing. Because in episode one, somebody says, Turpin, he was hanged in York. And Nathan Spiker, the local thief-taker who's always after us, that wasn't really Turpin, that was just somebody using his name. And with one bound, we are free to say, oh no, no, the Dick Turpin in our TV show was not that horrible nasty man, that was the fake Dick Turpin, the, essentially the real Dick Turpin of history. No, this is about our Dick Turpin, and our Dick Turpin is a bit of a Robin Hood character. So Dick Turpin the series is set after Dick Turpin the historical figure is already dead. I see. Now, okay... Point of order, because I think it's important that all of these different portrayals do tie up in some way or another. So maybe in a future drama club we may discuss the link between Jeremy Brett and Benedict Cumberbatch, for example. But in this instance, the last time before this portrayal of Dick Turpin, the last time that we saw Turpin, he was having a way with Barbara Windsor in Carry On Dick scarpering from Bernard Breslau and Kenneth Williams. So, presumably we are to assume that this is the same character who's perhaps sort of gone undercover for a year well, or there, so. There you go. Maybe maybe Sid James got hanged in York. 
I just I cannot foresee that happening in an episode of Carry On Laughing. The judge says you ought to be damn well hung. <laughs> Thank you. You can supply your own punchline. I've had no complaints. <laughs> then the trap door opens. <laughs> well, no, we've got some. No, you say, you we... say about um, having his end away. Again, Dick Turpin made the leap to the big screen, but only in the US. The third series of Dick Turpin was a, a five-part series, I think, in the UK, but was edited down into a theatrical release movie for the US, Dick Turpin's Greatest Adventure. And that third series begins and ends with Dick Turpin waking up in bed with a bird, and it's, oh, my husband! Oh, I better run out the... <laughs> leaping out the window in his underpants. Or their nearest 18th century equivalent. Hang on, Dick Turpin shows... Oh, that's my husband coming. And then you know what I'm talking about, you <laughs> foolish man. By the way, if anybody is tempted to buy the first series DVD of Dick Turpin, the last three episodes, they're in the wrong order because there's a little tiny story arc towards the end. So consult your nearest episode guide to watch them in the correct order. Now, hang on a second. I need to ask you a question that I can't even properly ask because I don't know the fellow's name, but this has been bugging me since I saw... Dick Turpin last night. The episode that you sent me concerns another high woman operating in the area. As it turns out, it is the nephew of this particular. Now, what's what's the chap supposed to be? Is he like he's, he's some important chap in the county, isn't he? Yes, he's he's presumably the guy who owns all the land. We're still in a somewhat feudal system. One of the motivations we get for Turpin in episode one is sort of he he was a soldier. He went off to war and then came back to find that the local landlord had basically seized his farm and was taxing the people you know so far so robin hood what relationship has he got with david dacre he's sort of his employer i guess because he's all he's as well as being the landowner i'm guessing he's the justice of the peace or the judge it's a corrupt system he has it all sewn up and so the guy who we don't really have a formal police force but the guy who's in charge of Enforcing the law at the sharp end is David Dacre as Nathan Spiker. Can we just mention Christopher Benjamin's character's name? Sir John Glutton. <laughs> it's a nice little in thing because dramas of that period would have characters who were just named after their main characteristic. Now, this is my question. Where have I seen Christopher Benjamin before? Because Absolutely everything. Well, no, this is the thing because generally I don't watch dramas, so... I must have seen him he's in a sitcom. He's out there. No, he's... Let's take a look at his IMDb. Well, yeah, because no, his face is really familiar to me, and I know I've seen him in something, and I just cannot... I was trying to think if I've seen him maybe in an episode of Blackadder or something like that, and I just cannot place him at all. I've seen him live, actually. I saw him in a production of Twelfth Night as Sir Toby Belch, I think. And Malvolio was played by Matthew Kelly. All right. Smashing. Oh, yes. Well, while you're looking that up, let me just slip us into the conversation. Matthew Kelly appeared in a Jimmy Perry sitcom made by Thames in 1979 called Room Service. The solo writing project by Jimmy Perry and also stars Brian Pringle, I believe. And I think it's actually down for a network DVD release in March. And the last DVD from the network that I pre-ordered, because I couldn't wait to get my hands on it, was The Whackers. And this is the next one that's going to be in my list for pre-ordering. I've been waiting to see Room Service for years. I've only ever seen about the first two or three minutes of the first episode. And it looks quite broad. 
and all good fun, hijinks, and again it's one of those situations where you can have lots of different people coming in because it's basically a large hotel, so you can have guests staying and people appearing for one episode and then coming out and not appearing to be unusual in that sense. So yeah, so yeah, there they go. Room service coming out this year on DVD. We'll definitely talk about that when it comes out. So Ocho, is anything that I would have seen? Did you say Christopher Benjamin? He's in an episode Jefferson? of Brass. He is in an episode of Yes, Prime Minister as the French ambassador. Oh, okay. Now, it takes a worried man. You ever seen that? Uh, long, I mean, actually, when it was on first. Uh, he's so in 16 episodes of that, as well as two episodes of Shine on Harvey Moon. He's got 161 credits on the IMDb. I'll have a browse later on. It might be the Yes, Prime Minister episode I'm thinking of, possibly. Dick Turpin's sidekick, Swift Nick, or Dick Turpin's Swift Nick sidekick, is played by Michael Deeks, who was in Galloping Galaxies. Hey, and which is fondly remembered by nobody. Well, no, nah, no, because who was the narrator? <laughs> who? No, he wasn't. He wasn't the narrator, was he? But who was the voice of the robot in Galloping Galaxies? Kenneth Williams. Exactly, Kenneth Williams, who was pursuing Dick Turpin and Carry On Dick. See, it's all related. We haven't really discussed the plot, but who cares? Who cares about the plot of an episode of Dick Turpin? Not that nobody should care, but that's not where the joy is. The joy is seeing Dick Turpin galloping around. The weird thing about this 18th century setting is it's about the nearest you can have to a proper British Western. Because you've got a time when guns exist, people go around mainly on horseback, and towns are a long way away apart. So that York to London would be a big commitment in a few days. When we get into the actual era of the Wild West in America, by that point, well, we've got trains. So York to London is hours. Now, obviously, I've only seen the one episode of it so far. Is there a full-on story arc in season one. There's a mini one towards the end. The nearest thing you get to a story arc is series three, which is a serial, and that's because that was made partially to be a TV series, partially to be a movie. And weirdly, it's actually, as far as I can tell, series two, if it's it's sold by network, I think, as just three series, even though technically there's four. Because as far as I know, what they did with series two was they showed half of it, then they showed series three, and then they showed the last half of series two after series three had gone out. They just stockpiled them. Series three is also a bit different because it's shot in glorious 35mm film instead of that grubby 16mm. So yeah, it's got that interesting, dirty sort of film look. As in, it's slightly discoloured now. I don't know what it would have looked like when it went out at first, but now it's in need of some as far as I remastering. Can tell, the film prints don't exist, so what you've got there is film locked onto videotape. And actually, Series 3, they've had to patch over bits with domestic recordings. Oh, really? I, oh, I think it's, I'm guessing it's been edited out of the film version. But the only scene I remember from being on television at the time is a scene that's off one of these understandably grotty... Uh, home recordings but i'm glad they restored it to its former glory i'm not oh sure yeah but i mean let me just clarify this this is a program what series three must have been about 1981 yeah and what the originals don't exist anymore apparently not oh blimey now surely this is something that's happened because this is a third party production in conjunction with lwt i suspect that if that was an lwt out now program that it would survive intact. Mm. Certainly by now. Mind you, I was just looking when we were talking, you know, talking about Anthony Valentine and Callan earlier. He's not in series three of Callan because he went off to the BBC to do a similar show called Code Name. Only the pilot exists, and the pilot exists, I think, as a telly recording. And Anthony Valentine's not in the pilot. Nineteen seventy, and it's wiped. Anyway, 
we digress. I really liked Dick Turpin. I am intrigued to see the remaining episodes. And yeah, that was a pleasant surprise because I really thought that actually it was a really sort of... I was thinking Robin the Sherwood. That's what I thought it was going to be like. And I couldn't possibly sit through that. And I know it seems like I've got some irrational dislike of Robin of Sherwood just because it was on for two hours on a Saturday night when I was growing up and would have been hoping to see, you know, three, two, one, or I think actually BBC was showing some others do album for a wee while then. So yeah, at least at least it was that on the other side. But I couldn't be doing with any sort of earnest sort of drama where it was. Oh, I can't explain it, but no, toss. Anyway, no, I enjoyed it. Good fun, half an hour, running around the place, going, yeehaw, I'm Dick Turpin, get him off. And filling his pockets full of gold and scarpings up. Yeah, brilliant. I, I would have said it was, if it, it's a drama at all, it's a very, very light-hearted drama with nice comedic bits and pieces. So you're really surprised, aren't you? Because you were, you were thinking that... Well, you'd been saying last time, I don't do drama, I don't... And I had sent you things I knew were major downers. My expectation was that I would have not actually completed all of the episodes. I was thinking, now, shall I try and bluff it based upon seeing part one, or shall I just confess <laughs> that I didn't get to the end of any of them? But no, it was um, even in at the door. They all held my attention, and I was intrigued to see how the story played out. And you can't really ask for much more than that, can you? Shall I throw in a little red button extra, a little bonus ball? I'll just briefly mention, right before we started recording, I watched the first episode of the all-new Birds of a Feller. Actually, do you know what? It wasn't that bad. I was thinking the live of birds. That's what I thought it was going to be like. I thought that it was going to be heavy on the pathos and trying to be sort of tear-jerking and what have you. It really wasn't like that at all. It was sort of like they hadn't really been away. I mean, the entire episode is basically establishing what they've all been doing and how they've now found themselves on the same place. Because time hasn't stood still. They've all been doing all things and now they've come back together again. But that, No, that would, be, that would be great <laughs> if the first shot was the same shot of the last episode we saw, but with lots of cobwebs. <laughs> and you go, oh, dear. Don't know what happened there. Well, that's how anyway. they. That's how they. That's how they opened the return of the goodies, wasn't it? Tim came out of the toilet and then realised that the audience was still there, and apparently they'd been there for like thirty years or something. That it would have been lovely if they'd credited people with having such long memories that they could remember the very last scene that they'd seen in nineteen ninety-eight as if it was yesterday. But no, no, it wasn't like that. But yeah, no, I won't give away any plot details. But suffice to say, obviously, the three ladies are back together again, and there are obviously some other characters in there, but it was no different from previously, and if you like Birds of a Feather before, you'll like it again. So, yeah, give it a go. It'll be on ITV Player still for another couple of days when you're listening to this, so. Dave dispensed with the whole pilot business and just jumped straight in with a series that obviously got confidence in it, but they did do a risky thing. They were promoting the hashtag, the Twitter hashtag beforehand, and saying everybody have a tweet along, and that kind of thing can go badly. Yes. Companies have found out to their cost that if they try and jump on the Twitter bandwagon, then you're being told by the company themselves, search for our hashtag, you search for the hashtag, and you just open up a vast Pandora's box full of shit reviews. But no, actually, when I did do a search for the hashtag afterwards, the vast majority of the, the people tweeting were positive about the show. So you, you're going you're gonna to have a look at it in due course, aren't you? I will, yes. But that's not what's occupying us next time, if all goes according to plan. 
We are discussing a show which no one's ever heard of called Good Neighbours. I'm sure one smart aleck out there knows what we're talking about already. I suppose Got to credit so. your audience with some intelligence. That's the lesson we learned from Dick Turpin. Well, it's been a hell of a week or so for Penelope Keefe already. Now, Dame Penelope Keefe. And as if that honour wasn't enough for her, now she's bestowed with the honour of the sitcom club. Discussing. Series one only of The Good Life. We'll probably make a lot of callbacks to ever-decreasing circles. We're obsessive. We're sort of clamping on to certain writers, aren't we? We've had our Roy Clark thing. Oh, I watched an episode of Mr. Rose last night, which was written by Roy Clark. Now, okay, well, here's the thing. We've already said that in 2014 we're going to be addressing everyone's requests for shows. So if you've got requests, and if you do think that we're a bit too heavy on particular writers or performers, send us a suggestion for a show that we've never... No, no, no. The the, the textual depth to this discussion that we're going to eventually, we're going to build a three-dimensional observation of a particular writer's career if we do it right. (laughs) No, the public gets what the public wants. So if you've got any suggestions for a show you'd like us to discuss in the future, if it's a name that we've never even mentioned on the show before, or a writer we've never mentioned, all the better. Great stuff. Tweet us at the sitcom club, and we will schedule it for a forthcoming edition. But no, you mentioned Ever Decreasing Circles. If you've never seen Ever Decreasing Circles, then it's actually going to appear on BBC4 within the next couple of weeks. I think it might be first evenings after Top of the Pops, but have a wee peek at the listings anyway. It's coming on BBC4 very soon. The Good Life is an interesting one because without getting into the discussion about it now, I can't think of too many occasions when you have a principal character who the cast member himself dislikes. Richard Breyer said on more than one occasion that he really did not like Tom Good and thought that he was a selfish guy for doing what he's done and that actually he was more in sympathy with Martin from about decreasing circles. But also what's happened to that next week, we'll discuss that. So if you've got any particular observations or any thoughts about the good life, tweet us at the sitcom club. If you can tweet us the day actually you're listening to the show, because we do record them a few days in advance. So if you're tweeting us tweet us perhaps on the Tuesday or the Wednesday so we'll get a chance and see your tweets before we actually have the discussion. Any other business or choice standing? Seven fifteen PM on a Saturday. <laughs> On ITV. Yeah, no, of course, we never even mentioned that, did we? This wasn't BBC Two. No, this is the nation's favourite. This is later on in the year where Bruce Forsyth's Big Night is going to be placed, featuring the £1,000 pyramid and the glums. So, what a, I mean, what a turnaround. I mean, January, there's Simon Cadell being evil, and then... December, there's Brucey and Rod Hull and Russ Abbott all just arsing around and what have you. I mean, same universe. Unbelievable. Well, as always, Ocho, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome and Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you very much to yourself for listening to today's show. Remember, you can find all the previous episodes of the podcast going back to April last year. First time I've said that, isn't it? Last year. Well, hey, we're in multi-year now. You can find all the previous episodes at sitcomclub.com you can find either the iTunes link or the straightforward XML feed on there if you've got anything for us at all tweet us at the sitcom club or email us feedback at sitcomclub.com and in the meantime until good neighbours slash good life next week this has been the sitcom club